0: Well, if you'll open your Bible to the book of Proverbs chapter number 10, I do want to talk to you today about what happens to us when we find ourselves in a whirlwind. Now, I think we, we have an idea of what a whirlwind is in nature. Sometimes there are winds that are coming in from this direction and there are other winds that are coming in from this direction, and these winds meet each other, and what happens is they begin to swirl around like that, and that's how tornadoes are formed. That's how whirlwinds are formed. Well, sometimes in life, we feel like we are caught between these multiple winds coming from all these different directions. Sometimes we have the wind of adversity coming from this direction. We have the wind of discouragement coming from this direction. We may have the wind of physical problems or financial setback, and these winds are just coming at us from all directions, and, and what happens is those winds can turn into a whirlwind, and we think to ourselves, what has happened to my life? What is happening to my life? And today, some of you here undoubtedly are feeling like that you are in the midst of a whirlwind, and in Proverbs chapter 10, there's one verse that addresses this, and I want this to be our verse for the morning, chapter 10 and verse number 25. The Bible says this, when the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more but the righteous has an everlasting foundation." Now, just a very casual reading of that verse uh, says a couple of things to us just right off the bat. First of all, I notice here that whirlwinds don't last forever, they pass by. Again, look at the beginning of the verse. When the whirlwind passes by, that whirlwind that you might be in today, that situation that you might be facing, I just wanna remind you today, it did not come to stay It came to pass, four of the greatest verses in all the Bible, this too shall pass, when the whirlwind passes by. Now, another thing I notice here is that as a general rule, now this would not always be true, it depends on how people respond, but as a general rule, whirlwinds, storms have a negative effect on unbelievers and they have a positive effect on believers. Now, look at it again. Look at the verse. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked The unbeliever is no more. In other words, the the storm that comes into their life has a negative effect on them, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. In other words, a a Christian person goes through many of the same storms that a non-Christian goes through. As my dad said last week in his sermon on why do bad things happen to good people, we're all living in a fallen world and we go through many of the same things. But those of us who are saved... As a general rule, when the storm is over, if we've responded properly, by the grace of God, we will still be standing. The righteous has an everlasting foundation. Now, that being true, even those of us who are saved, even those of us who believe with all of our hearts that God is not only that he he exists, But in the storms of our life, that he remains in our, in control, that, that he has a good purpose in mind, that we can trust him, whatever it is we face, even though we believe those things and that builds up our faith, even those of us who are believers, we don't always get an A plus in how we respond to the storms of life. We don't always, we don't always get an A plus, nobody's perfect. And sometimes those whirlwinds hit us out of nowhere and instead of responding with faith and, and with confidence and with courage and with a positive attitude that results from all of that, many times we respond in different ways. And so what I wanna do in the message today, I wanna mention three mistakes that believers, those of us who are saved, Often make in the midst of a whirlwind. Three mistakes. And the first one is simply this In the midst of a whirlwind, we often doubt things that we know to be true. We doubt things that we know to be true. These storms come into our life and and we begin to doubt is God really in control? Is God really good? Because if God were really good, why would he have allowed this to happen? Does God really have all the power that the Bible says he has and the preacher says he has and all these songs say that he has? If God has all this power, if God has power to heal, why did he let my loved one die? If God has power to lift us up, why am I depressed? If God has power in all these ways, why am I going through what I'm going through? I'm saying in the midst of a whirlwind, we often doubt things in the darkness of the night, And especially as the storm goes on, we often doubt things that for many years we have known and we have believed to be true. Now, the reason I say that is, first of all, because we've all done it. I've done that, and I'm sure you have too. But did you know some of the greatest characters in all the Bible... When they found themselves in a whirlwind, they themselves doubted things that they knew to be true. Now, there are a lot of examples I could give this, but I just want to give the example of one person. So go to the New Testament, if you would, and find the gospel of John and chapter number one. I want us to think about John the Baptist for just a moment. The cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus and announced the coming of of Jesus. John the Baptist if anybody ever believed that Jesus Christ was the son of God, it was John the Baptist. And I want to show you how he came to know this in John chapter one and verse 29. This is one of the greatest verses in the new Testament. It says the next day, John, now that's John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. In other words, he is greater than I am. But look what he says in verse 31. I did not know him. I didn't understand that that this was the Lamb of God, that this was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John's baptism in the Jordan River was telling people to repent of their sins and to believe in the Messiah who was to come. And John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness saying, remember, he baptized Jesus. Now watch this. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon Jesus. John is recalling the experience that he had had in the Jordan River where he baptized Jesus and then lifted him out of that water. And when Jesus came out of that water, a dove came down from heaven and landed on Jesus, presumably on the shoulder of Jesus. But look what it says. I did not know him, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God had said to John the Baptist, John, I know you don't fully understand what's going on. I know that you know that you're to announce the coming of the Messiah. What you've not yet understood is your cousin is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and this is going to be the sign for you. When you see a dove land on him, that's the one that is the savior of the world. And so look what John said in verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. In other words, God had spoken to John and said, John, this is how you'll know the Messiah. A dove will land on him. And he saw that happen in the person of Jesus. And he knew beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus Christ was the son of God, the savior of the world, the long promised Messiah. And that's why he could say, behold, the lamb of God pointing at Jesus with not a doubt in his mind, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what I want you to see is John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. Just go back to the left, a few books, and find Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read another story that happened years later in the life of John the Baptist. This man who baptized Jesus, who saw the dove land on Jesus, who heard God's voice, from heaven with his own ears. He had an experience that, that we've not had. And he knew in his heart that Jesus was the Messiah. But in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist now is in prison. Why is he in prison? He's in prison because of his faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, he's in prison because he has confronted Herod about Herod's sinful lifestyle. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass... When Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So Jesus now is out teaching and preaching. He's well established in his ministry. But look in verse two. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now these disciples still had access to John. The disciples weren't in prison, the disciples of John the Baptist, but he was. And now John's in prison and he's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing out there. And so he sends two of his disciples and watch this, verse three, and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? John the Baptist in prison. We could say he's in his own whirlwind now. He's experiencing his own storm. And in the, in the, difficult circumstances that he found himself in, John the Baptist began to doubt and to wonder and to question, is Jesus Christ really the Messiah? Is Jesus Christ really the one we've been waiting for? Is Jesus Christ really the Savior of the world? What was he doing? He was doubting in the dark what he had believed in the light. He was doubting things that for three years he had known to be true. And I'm saying to you, we've done the same. We've done the same thing. Now, we may never have doubted that Jesus is the Messiah. I've never doubted that. Not for one minute have I ever doubted that Jesus is the Messiah. But have probably been times in all of our lives that we've doubted whether or not Jesus cares, whether or not God has the power to see us through, whether or not God really is in control. And this is John the Baptist. He's doubting who Jesus is in this prison. And so Jesus sent word through these two disciples of John and look in verse four, what he said, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What was Jesus saying? Jesus saying, John, listen, you know who I am. You baptized me. You heard the father's voice. You saw the dove land on me. You know I'm the savior of the world. You know I'm the promised Messiah. But John, what's happened to you now is your circumstances have gotten tough. They've gotten difficult. They've gotten hard. You're in prison. You're in a storm. You're in a whirlwind. And now, John, you are doubting those things that you deep down know to be true. And what was Jesus saying? He was saying, John, don't doubt me. Doubt your doubts. Question your doubts. Don't doubt me. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. John, you know I'm the Messiah. Believe. One of the best things I ever heard, and I can't remember where I first heard it, where I first read it, but years ago I heard this statement and it has stuck with me ever since. And here it is. Never doubt in the dark what you believed in the light. Say that with me. Never doubt in the dark what you believed in the light. In that Jordan River, John saw that dove come down. He said, this is the Messiah. I just baptized him. But years later, in the darkness of this prison, he's doubting what he had believed in the light. And like I say, we've all done that. I've done that. I've wondered. I've questioned, not that Jesus is the Messiah, but but I've asked these questions. But you know what I've learned? I have learned that God is in control even when it looks like nobody's in control. I've learned that God is good even when he doesn't appear to be good at the time. I've learned that God cares, even when it seems as though God is a million miles away. And I'm encouraging you today, don't doubt in the dark what you believe in the light. Don't doubt those things that you deep down know to be true. Doubt your doubts, but don't doubt God. And don't doubt his promises in your life. But the first mistake that we often make in a whirlwind, we doubt those things that we know to be true. Now, a second mistake that we often make is this, and it's just as bad. In the midst of a whirlwind, we often make premature and inaccurate judgments about the situation. Here we are in the storm. John was in the prison. We're in the whirlwind. We're in the heat of the battle, man. And what do we do? We began in the midst of the trial to make a premature and many times an inaccurate judgment. Now, I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, and I wanted to put this on the screen today. And I thought it was one of the best quotes I'd ever read. He said, a jury doesn't reach a verdict until the trial is over. Now, you think about that. We've seen so many in the last few years and decades famous trials on television, and the prosecuting side makes their case against the defendant, and, man, when they're putting that evidence out there, it looks like, man, he is guilty, no doubt about it. You know, lock him up. He's guilty for whatever he's being accused of. But then the trial goes on, and the defense comes, and the defense makes their case And when you finish hearing the defense, you say, no, wait a second. This is not as clear cut as what I thought it was. Even Proverbs has a verse that says that. It says the first person to present his case seems right until the other side comes and tells their side of the story. And so as you watch these trials on TV, you think, no, wait a second. I thought he was guilty, but now I'm beginning to wonder. I don't think he did that at all. It doesn't seem like he is guilty now. But what did Spurgeon say? He said a jury doesn't reach a verdict until the trial is over and yet many times in life we do we're in the middle of a trial and it's hard and it's painful and it doesn't make sense and we don't like it and we're hurting i talked to a man yesterday a a good friend of mine he and his wife members of our church for many years she worked as a ministry assistant here at the church and about 15 years ago they retired and moved to east texas and she ended up getting Alzheimer's and some other physical problems and she got very bad and when one day I haven't talked to either one of them in 15 years and her husband called me and he said John do you remember me this is Tom Clark I said Tom I remember you and and he told me about his wife Joyce and what she was going through and he said you know I'm just sitting here at our house today my wife's now in assisted living and he said, I'm as low as I've ever been. And he said, I just, to tell you how low he was, he said, I just got my phone and I started scrolling through the contact list. And I just said, now, God, is there anybody in my contact list that I could call today that might could help me? And he said, John, I didn't even think I still had your number in my phone. And he said, but I saw your name and... Uh, And I just wanted to call. And he called me. And since then, he and I have, you know, every two or three or four weeks, we'll talk. And Joyce since has died and gone to be with the Lord, Tom called me yesterday. And uh, he's in the middle of this. They've been married 65 years. And and he's just trying to deal with this and, and not get over it, but get through it. And I said to him, I said, well, Tom, how are you doing? And he said, well, I'm doing okay. And he told me all about some of the things he's been going through and the the hospice nurse who came to his house the other day for two hours, talking to him, trying to help him through this part of the grieving process. I said, Tom, how are you sleeping at night? Because if you've ever been through anything like that, you know that one of the things you can't do is sleep. And another thing you can't do many times is eat. And so when you can't sleep and you can't eat, that's a bad combination. He said, well, he said, I guess maybe I'm sleeping a little better. He said, I get in bed... And I lay there every night till four in the morning. And he said, I finally go to sleep about four and I wake up about seven. And so I'm going on about three hours of sleep every night and I get a little nap in the afternoon. But he's just telling me all this and he is in the midst of a trial of grief and it just takes time. And again, you don't get over it, but it takes time to get through it. And he said yesterday, he said, John, uh, I still miss Joyce. He said, but I'll tell you, the more I've thought about it, I'm so glad she's no longer in that assisted living in the condition she was in. I wouldn't bring her back if I could. And he said, I know she's in heaven, and I know she's happy, and I know I'll see her again, and I'm trying to focus on her and how she's doing, not on me and how I'm feeling. And he said, I just sense that little by little, day by day, God is slowly bringing me through this. But what I'm saying is it would be a horrible mistake for him In the midst of that, to reach a verdict on God and to say, well, God, if you're really good, why did you let let her get this disease? God, if you're really powerful, if you're really Jehovah Rapha, if you're really the healer, why didn't you heal her? See, it would be a horrible mistake for him in the middle of the trial to reach a verdict before the trial is over. And so what is he doing? He's letting the trial run its course. He's letting the trial play itself out. And as he goes on with God, things are becoming clearer to him. Now, go back just a few books from Proverbs to the book of Job. Best example I know of in the Bible of somebody who was in a trial. And, you know, we study Job in this trial of all that he lost, his health, his children, his, his finances, his reputation within the community. Many people thought that he was going through all this because of some sin in his life. And that wasn't true at all. And many times we read Job say something that is a strong declaration of faith. For example, in chapter, don't look this verse up, but in chapter 13 and verse 15, Job said, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. High watermark of faith. But at other times, we find Job struggling in this trial. And we find that he didn't make an A plus all the way through either. And uh, he sometimes reached a verdict before the trial was over. Chapter three and verse 11. Notice what Job said on this particular day. He wasn't talking about how great God was or how you know how strong his faith was on this day, chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what Job said Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees that receive me or the breast that I should nurse? In other words, why didn't I die as soon as I was born? Why did God let me grow up and, and be uh, nursed by my mom and, and, and grow? And wh- why didn't I just die? When I, would have, when I was first born, in verse 13, in fact, he says, for now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Job, in the middle of the trial, reached a verdict. And on this particular day, Job concluded that it would have been better for him that he had never been born or if he had to be born, that he would have died on the day of his birth, as opposed to having to go through this trial. And so Job uh, is is making the mistake here that we often make. He's reaching a premature verdict. Now go to the end of the book of Job in chapter number 42. Because now when we get to chapter 42, the trial has run its course. The trial now has come full circle and Job is beginning to see it from a different perspective and to see it a different way. In chapter 42 and verse 10, notice what the Bible says. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his. Friends. Look in verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And then it talks about all the sheep and the camels and the oxen and all that he had gotten back. And if you compare the numbers there to the numbers that he had lost at the beginning, he got back double what he had lost. And then in verse number 13, it said, he also had seven sons and three daughters. What had he had at the beginning of the book? Seven sons and three daughters, and they had all been killed. And so here at the end, it says that now he has seven sons and three daughters. The only thing that wasn't returned to him in double was his kids. You say, well, why didn't he have 20 kids instead of 10? Remember this. He hadn't lost his first 10. They had just gone to heaven before he had. And so that's why God didn't give him 20. He just gave him 10 because he still had the other 10. They had just moved to heaven. And then look in verse 16. It says, after this, that is after the trial, it's over with now. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. And so at the beginning of the trial, Job says, God would have been better if I would never been born. And at the end of the trial, Job is saying, now wait a second, God has taken this and God has done something great in me. And you know what, last week I saw something that I never had thought of based on a, a text message from a friend that got me to thinking in a different way about Job. Did you know at the end of Job's trial, the greatest thing wasn't that God restored Job twice as much as he had before. I'd always thought that was the end of the story. Did you know the greatest thing wasn't what God did for Job. The greatest thing was what God did in Job. Look back in at the beginning of this chapter in verse 42 in verse one, it says, then Job answered the Lord and said, now now we're going to read what God has done in this man's heart. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. One of the translations says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Job saying, God, at the beginning of this trial, I was reaching conclusions. I was saying things I had no idea what, what, what I was saying. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. Look at verse five. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. At the end of the trial, Job's a different man. He now has humility. He now has greater faith. He now knows God in a deeper way than he ever knew God at the beginning of the trial. And it just goes to show that many times, in the midst of a trial, we reach a premature and inaccurate judgment. I want to say again what Spurgeon said, a jury never reaches a verdict until the trial is over. You still listen? Say amen. Now there's one other mistake that I want to mention today, and I'm really not sure if this is a mistake. I don't really think this is a mistake that we make. I just think it's something that happens. It's just part of going through a trial. And that is this, in the midst of a trial, we often become weary there's something about a trial especially if it lingers on and on and sometimes the aftermath of the trial and you think goodness gracious will this ever will this ever will this ever end and we become weary that's why paul said in galatians chapter 6 let us not grow weary in well doing you know nobody becomes weary in a day nobody becomes weary in a week but as the trial lingers on if we're not careful, we can grow weary. It ju- trials have a way of wearing us down. I've noticed in my life, in certain things that I have been through, it seems that in the heat of the trial, we would say in the heat of the battle, that God knows that if he didn't help you, you just couldn't make it. And so he just reaches down and picks you up and get you through the, the heat of it. But sometimes after the worst of it is over, and yet the trial's not over, that's when we just we just become we just become weary. And I just think it's a reality and, and and it's something that happens. And when we get weary, I've learned this too. Did you know more than anything else, when we get weary, what we need is a word from God? I've been reading, or I did read, a few. Days ago, through Psalm 119, that's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and I broke it down over several days to, so I wouldn't you know, overread. I want to be able to think about it, and I was—I had never noticed in Psalm 119, how in that whole chapter is about the Bible. Every verse in that chapter is about the Word of God. If not every verse, almost every verse in there is about the Word of God. And how many times the psalmist said, "Revive me according to Your Word." The psalmist was down and low and he said, God, I need to be revived. I want to show you one of those verses out of the Christian Standard Bible because of how well it says it. The psalmist said, my life is down in the dust. I wonder how many people here today who would say, man, I can identify with him on that. My life is, is down in the dust too. But notice what he said. Give me life through your word. In other words, there's something about a word from God. I've noticed this many times in my life. I could maybe feel like, man, I am down in the dust. I don't. The winds are blowing and what does this mean and what are the ramifications of what I'm going through and how is this gonna play out in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of my life and, and what does this mean? And down in the dust, if we can receive a word from God, it refreshes us, it revives us, it lifts us up. And it gives us the strength to keep on keeping on one day at a time. And that's what the psalmist says, revive me and give me life according to your word. You know, the proverb says, it talks about good news from a distant land and how that just, it's like, cold, it's like cold water on a hot day. It refreshes us and it just lifts us up. I, I was reminded of how important it is to, to get a word when you're going through a storm recently. A week and a half ago, my dad and I flew to Atlanta, Georgia and rented a car and drove to Athens, where the university is, to lead the uh, funeral service for my great uncle, Parks. My dad's uncle, he's only 10 years older than my dad and so the two of them have always been like brothers. And Parks, for me, has always been like an uncle. You've heard of us talk of him through the years. He's the one who paid for my parents' uh, apartment for the, back in the 70s when they went through seminary. He paid for their apartment for all the three years that they were in seminary. And then when I went to seminary, he wrote me a letter and he said, John, you're going in seminary. This was over 20 years later. And he said, I just feel led to pay for your rent while you're in seminary. And he said, enclosed is a check that will cover the first two years of your housing and uh and I called him and thanked him and I said now Parks you do remember this is a three-year program I'm in up here (laughs) he said I know but I didn't want to pay in advance I want to make sure you finish the first two before I pay for the (laughs) and through the years not every time but many times when I would talk to Uncle Parks on the phone he would say to me remember John I made an investment in you and I expect it to be a good investment And I hope that it it will be. But anyway, we went back to preach his service, and it was a sweet service. Saw family we hadn't seen. I saw some family I'd never had seen. I met some second cousins I didn't know I even had. But anyway, when we finished the funeral, we drove back to Atlanta, and we got on the plane to fly back to Houston. And we got on the plane, we got seated there, and we got situated. And, you know, normally the flight attendant comes on and welcomes you and tells you to buckle up and put your trays, you know, up in your seat, it has got to be straight and all the things that they say. Well, on this particular flight, the pilot came out and the pilot just stood where the flight attendant normally stands. And he said, I want to just thank everybody today for flying Delta Airlines and just welcome you to this flight. He said, we're going to have a good flight. He said, we're going to be in Houston in an hour and a half from the time we take off to the time we touch down. I'll have you there in an hour and a half. He said, now, when we get over Mississippi and Louisiana, I want to just tell you before we start, we're going to run into some rough air up there, and it's going to be bumpy, but it'll be fine. We're going to come through it. time we get to Texas, it's smooth. I'll have you on the ground in an hour and a half. This, this, poli- this police, this uh, pilot was, uh, was just telling us all. He was kind of a comedian, actually. The first thing he said was, hey, are you guys ready to go to Cancun? You know, he's one of these type of guys. And we're all laughing. He's just doing one-liners. And I'm thinking, you know, I kind of wish my pilot was more serious than this. This guy's a comedian. But he told us about the, what to expect over Mississippi and Louisiana. And he gave the microphone back to the flight attendant. He went in the cockpit, closed the door. We took off. We are flying along. Greatest flight. My dad and I, I know I drifted off and went to sleep, and I think he did. Well, all of a sudden, out of the blue, Bam! I thought, well, we just crossed the Mississippi State line now. And we bounced all through Mississippi, and we got to Louisiana, and we got to Louisiana. I thought, man, I knew Louisiana had bad roads. I didn't know they had bad air in Louisiana, but we're bumping all through Louisiana. It's so bad. the flight attendants discontinued service. I mean, even they said, "Whoa, I mean, the plane, you know how you've been on those flights." And I have to be honest with you, I didn't say anything to my dad or, or anybody else, but I thought to myself. And I guess this was just the kid coming out in me, but I thought to myself, I sure wish the captain would come on that microphone and say, we're going to be okay. <laughs> Please, captain, now is when we need to hear about we're going to be okay. But you know what? Captain didn't say anything. Cockpit was silent. And we just kept bumping through the air. And as I was just thinking about that, I was, and I really was, I was kind of, I don't think I was praying, but I was in a spirit of meditation. And I just thought, God, it sure would be good if that, if that captain would tell us everything's going to be okay. And I just felt in that moment, God say to me, you know what? The captain told you what to expect before he took off in Atlanta. He told you that there was going to be some turbulence over Mississippi and Louisiana. And he told you once you got through Louisiana, it would smooth out. And he told you that he would have you on the ground in Houston in an hour and a half, right on time. And just because the captain is not speaking during the storm, that doesn't mean that the captain hasn't already spoken. That doesn't mean the captain's not in control. And that doesn't mean the captain's not going to get you where you need to be. And I just felt like God, just in my spirit, just said to me, what's happening on this flight is what often happens in life. When you got saved and when you got on board, before we really took off and started flying, Jesus said, I told you that on this flight, there will be trials and tribulations. And you get in life and you encounter the storm and God is silent. And you say, God, why don't you give me a word? And God said, I already gave you a word. I gave you a word before the flight took off. I told you that it was not gonna be smooth sailing, but I gave you another word. I gave you my promise that I would fly with you through the storm and that I would get you to your intended destination right on time. And the word right now in the midst of the storm... When the cockpit is silent and the captain is not saying anything, the word right now is to trust me in the storm and to trust me in the silence. And friend, I want to remind you today that just because the captain is silent, that doesn't mean the captain is absent. He's still in the cockpit. He's still flying the plane and he's still going to get us where we need to be. And that's the word. That's the word. You know, sometimes in a storm, God will just give us a word. I've been in storms, and God, get, just drop a word out of heaven for me. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. All things work together for good. I mean, God, there have been times in my life, God, just, and I know it has with you, God just drops a message out of heaven to us in our hearts. But you know, sometimes in a storm, I've learned this. You have to take your Bible and you have to find the word. You have to find the word. A couple of Sunday nights ago, I was home and I had read that night in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I came across that verse, the seventh verse, that says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. And that was kind of my takeaway verse from First 1 First Peter chapter 5 that night. He cares for me. He cares for me. He cares for me. That night I was concerned about a little something and I just felt like God said, he cares for me. He cares for me. I got a phone call that night from a friend, a lady and her husband, faithful members of our church. And she and I had been trying to have a conversation for two weeks and we never could coordinate our schedules to have the conversation. And so I had texted her the day before and I said, call me either Sunday or Sunday afternoon or Monday, whenever. And, and she did. And she told me a story that I'll not tell now, but she said, John, here's what I learned from the story I just told you. She said, I learned, and I'm just telling you how sometime God will speak. She said, I learned that God cares about the things that we care about. Now that doesn't seem deep or profound. It just seems like, well, of course he does. God cares about the things that we care about. And we finished the conversation and hung up. And yet I couldn't get that out of my mind. God cares about the things that we care about. And then my mind went back to the passage I had read in 1 Peter 5. He cares for you. He cares for you. And I thought, you know, and on that night I was not in a major storm, but I was nonetheless concerned about something. And I didn't have it that night from God where he just dropped a word out of heaven, but I did take my Bible and I did read my assigned reading for the day in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I did come across that verse, he cares for you. And then talking to a friend, and she said, God cares about the things that we care about. And before I went to bed that night, I said to myself, you know what? I got a word from God tonight that he cares. Sometimes in a storm, God is silent. You know what I've learned? When God is silent, just believe whatever the last thing was he told you. Whatever he said last, you believe that. Sometimes in a storm, he's not silent. Sometimes he'll just drop a word, a rhema, from his heart to your heart. Sometimes in a storm, he's silent. And what do we do? We take our Bible, the word of God. And what do we do? We find a word. We find a promise. We claim the promise. And it is His Word that gives us life and gives us energy and helps us to make it through to the other side. Amen. Father, I thank you today that in the midst of the storm, even though sometimes we doubt those things we know to be true, God, sometimes we reach a premature and inaccurate verdict. And God, often we become weary. God, I thank you that whether you're speaking or silent, no matter how turbulent it may be, that you are still flying the plane of our life. And you have promised to get us through the storm, and you've promised one day to get us safely to our destination in heaven. Now, Christian friend, with your head bowed and eyes closed, I said at the beginning... Even Christians don't always get an A plus on how we respond to the storm. Would you ask God today to help you to trust and to believe what you know to be true? Would you ask God to help you resist the temptation of making a premature judgment in the midst of the trial? Let the trial run its course. And for those who are weary today, would you ask God to give you a fresh word from his word for you? Maybe the one I mentioned at the end is the one you needed today. God cares about those things that you care about. That's That's God's word. Now take that today. Go with that. God cares. Others here today, you say, John, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm in a storm. But I don't know for sure that Jesus is in the cockpit. I don't know that he's my captain. I just kind of feel like I'm flying blind up here. I'm flying by myself. And I need Jesus in my storm, in this plane, in my life. I need Jesus. Listen, God's blessing us coming into last Sunday. I don't know how many we had saved last Sunday, but... Since New Year's Day of this year through last Sunday, we have seen 170 people. We've really seen more than that, but we've seen 170 people get saved and make it to the decision room, the family room. We've seen others get saved who've not even gone, but I'm saying in almost every service, and some services, there are 10 and 12 and more per service, people who are being saved. And today in this service, I can't help but to think that there's some here who say, John, I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus to fly this plane. I need Jesus to forgive my sins. Would you pray this to him today? Say, Lord Jesus, I'm alone. I'm in a storm. Worse than that, I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness. And I'm asking you now to come into my heart. Forgive my sins. And make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it.